0: We've been um, making our way through these God questions this fall. And uh, if you've been here regularly, maybe you've noticed the same thing. But you can ask exactly the same question with exactly the same words and mean something completely different. So a a non-Christ follower would take today's question and go, how could a loving God? Send people to hell. And behind their question is a note of skepticism and cynicism and questioning. You know, they, they don't believe in God, so they hear about this God of love. How, how could a God of love do something like that? But if you are a Christ follower, you can ask the exact same question using the exact same words and mean something completely different. You could reflect How could a loving God send people to hell? You're trying to reconcile in your own mind this deep-seated belief that you have of a God who loves, and yet at the same time the fact that there are people who live an eternal life in damnation separated from God. How do those two things go together? Exact same words, exact same question. Meaning something completely different. So there's a lot of um, a lot of casual talk about this issue of hell if you listen to conversations around you. And sometimes you're in a situation where you go, hey, I'm going to listen in on their conversation. And other times you can't help it. You know, uh, recently I was in a coffee shop, kind of overcrowded. You sit, you, know, you sit down and, you know, everybody's kind of around you. And I don't really want to be a part of their conversation, but I can't really escape it because they're so close and they're talking, you know, relatively. Loud. You can hear everything that they're saying. And I overheard um, one person say to another, well, you know, my spouse is going to have surgery. And it's not life-threatening surgery. It should be all okay. Uh, But, you know, there's going to be like eight weeks of recovery, and i got to stay home and take care of them. That's going to be like hell. And I notice how I was very careful not to name gender and who was saying what about who. Uh, But now I do know how Becky felt about my four weeks of recovery last January. Um, You know, there's just this idea that there are some things that we have to do that just are kind of like hell on earth for us. Uh, On a more serious note, on Friday, I was listening to a radio program where um, they were interviewing veterans who had fought in wars. And they were sharing their experiences, um, mostly the atrocities that take place in war. And I never served in the military. I I only know by what I have seen on television and observed and read about. Um, but, But I don't know that any of us, unless we have, can imagine what it must be like to watch comrades be killed, you know, in your in front of your very eyes, to, to have to shoot other people and kill them, to not know whether it's the enemy or someone who is friendly, to have to take the life of women and children in some you know, in, in, in cases where where that's necessary to watch people be blown to pieces literally in front of your eyes and see all of that suffering happen in front of you and then knowing that for years you carry that image with you and sometimes you relive it to the point where some people suffer from PTSD and I don't know how you don't if you're in that situation. And this radio program was about trying to reconcile all of what they saw and experienced in war with a loving God and a God of faith. And some couldn't. In fact, there was one thing that was said in this program that I found very curious. I'd never heard this perspective before, but I kind of get it. You know how they always say, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes. This this person who fought in war, so I, I don't believe that at all. If you've been in a foxhole and you've watched what happens to people and what we do to one another, it's hard not to be an atheist. It's hard to believe in a loving God when you see that kind of atrocity exist. And so everyone has a little bit of a different perspective on this this issue of hell and what it's like to live in hell on earth but none of what we experience none of what we say is hell on earth can compare to the actual hell that the bible talks about theologian rc Sproul writes this about hell there is no biblical concept more grim or terror invoking than the idea of hell it is so unpopular with us that few would give credence to it at all except that it comes from the teaching of Christ himself. The Bible speaks of hell's existence in both the Old and New Testament. It uses phrases like Sheol or the pit or the depths or cast into the utter darkness uh, or or a lake of fire or a lake of sulfur or burning or weeping or gnashing of teeth. This is all kind of a way of describing hell and the hell that people uh, experience. And when we talk about eternal life, we generally are thinking of, when we oh, yes, wouldn't you like to accept Christ and live an eternal life? Well, if you accept life, that's one eternal life. But there's another kind of eternal life. <laughs> there's another option. And that option is this hell that Jesus talks about in the end of, um, toward the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 25, he records a parable that Jesus told about the, the separating of the sheep and the goats. And in verse 41, Jesus says, And then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then just a couple of verses after that, he says, He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of those, one of these, least of these, you did not do for me. It's this whole story of how you know, you know, when you when you saw me hungry, you didn't feed me. When you saw me thirsty, you didn't give me water. When you when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they and they you know, we didn't see you that way. He said, No, 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 no. You did. It, it's all around you. And you didn't respond with love. And those who didn't respond will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteousness, the righteous, to eternal life. When John writes in Revelation about the end of time, he says in chapter 20, anyone whose name was not found in the written, written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then a chapter later he says, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Hell is real. It's full of horror and torment. It's a fiery lake of burning sulfur. It's the most difficult, painful, cold, devoid of all kinds of, any kind of good whatsoever. It's absent from hell. And whatever we could imagine, it's worse. Jesus told the story about two people one day that went like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, another one of these words that's used for hell, in Hades, where he was in torment... He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony and besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that so they'll not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he told them if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Two men one rich and one poor. And the wealthy man lived his life in luxury behind uh, a gated community and dressed very well and had all the great benefits of life, a life of ease. And the other man, whose name was Lazarus, was a beggar, poor, destitute, lived outside of this rich man's uh, house, slept on the ground, begged for money there, tried to eke out a living, and to top it off, as if being poor and having to beg for a living wasn't bad enough, he had some kind of illness, some kind of disease, There, he had sores that covered his body. And to top that off, <laughs> Jesus tells us that he had dogs that would come and lick these sores. And that sounds, I mean, why, Jesus, why did you have to like, include that? It's rather disgusting. Every detail is important. If dogs licked your sores, then you were considered to be unclean. And if you were unclean, you weren't eligible to participate in the religious community, and probably then would be excluded from eternal life. Every detail of the story makes sense. Both of these men die. The poor man goes to heaven, meets Abraham, hangs out with him. The rich man goes to hell. Now it's important for us to note that they didn't go to heaven and hell because of their economic status on earth. It's not like all rich people go to hell and all poor people will go to heaven. It's what we do on earth in terms of our relationship with God that determines our eternal assignment. And apparently the rich man... Which is a tendency, which is why Jesus warned against us, if you are wealthy, you tend to be self-sufficient, and you don't need God or anybody else in life. <laughs> but if you are poor, you're totally dependent on everyone else, including God, for your life. And it's that distinction to determine their eternal home. And when they were in their eternal assignments the rich man could see off in the distance back in the corner Lazarus and, and Abraham and he wondered if, if somehow maybe Lazarus could, could come over and could, you know, give him a little bit of a drink to kind of ease the torment that he was going through and isn't that a classic attitude of the rich man right could you send over the poor beggar to give me a little water in my discomfort And Abraham said, There's a great chasm. There's a great separation between us. He can't come to you, and you can't come to us. This was all decided a long time ago. Well, then maybe you could send Lazarus to tell my living relatives about this so they could escape my destiny. And Abraham says, Look, they've got all the information they need. Everything they need to know about determining where they're going to spend eternity is available to them. And then, in an allusion to himself in the story, Jesus says, Even if someone rises from the dead and comes back, some people will just reject this message. They're not going to buy it. Hell is real which in my mind only makes this question more urgent. How could a loving God do that to people? How could could he send people to hell? I think I probably told you this story before, but I can't keep track. I'm getting too old. Um, About my first year of teaching, um, I taught U.S. government, um, and all of my students had to take it, and they had to pass my class to graduate from high school. Now, U.S. government was probably their idea of a living hell, I mean, not when I taught it, but the other teachers. So it, it came time for the first marking period, and I sent the grades home, and then the parents come in, and they have a little conversation with you. And, and one mom came in, and she was not happy with me at all. You know, she said, you know, you failed my son. And I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Let, let, let's see what really happened. You know, this was back in the olden days where you put grades in ink in a grade book (laughs) and parents couldn't check progress on a computer to see if their kids are handing in their assignments. They couldn't quite helicopter as much as we can do today. And so I got the grade book out and I looked and I said, you know, I I gave everybody a syllabus at the beginning of the class and they all knew exactly what was expected. All the assignments are right here by date. Uh, you know, and, and what they were supposed to, what they were going to be graded on. I told them when the quizzes would be. There was no pop quizzes. No, I said, that was a dumb idea when I was a student. Why would I? A pop quiz? Surprise! Woohoo! It's like you're trying to trick the kids into failing. I don't get it. I told them everything ahead of time. Everything they needed to do to pass. And I looked in the grade book and held. Zero, 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 zero. I didn't even need to use higher math to figure out what his grade was going to be. It was pretty clear to me. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't fail your son. <laughs> he, he made choices, and these are the consequences. He decided to do it his way, and I had to do it the right way, the, the, the way that we're supposed to do as an educator, and, 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 and he went the wrong way, and this is the result. This is the consequence. I mean, I loved my students. There was nothing more painful than to go through the grade book and have to put an F down, knowing that I had the power to control high school graduation or not, which is why I got so many great Christmas presents every year from these kids. It was agonizing. I didn't want to have to do it. The good news was this was the first nine-week marking period, and he had another nine-week marking period to make the whole thing up, and it turned out fine. But every choice that we make in life has a consequence. You know, this is, this is, this is one of the things that parents teach their kids all the time. You know, Mitch and Mary, they got this great, cute little kid, Parker, who calls me blue today. Hey, blue. <laughs> Clever little kid. He can't say red yet, but he can say blue. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to teach him at some point that every choice he makes has a consequence. You know? Every choice has a consequence. You know, you you, you choose to live in northern Michigan, you're going to live with a bunch of snow. Okay? You choose to live in Chicago, you're going to have weather like this. You choose a certain career, and there are all sorts of great things about that career, but there's also some other things that go with that career that aren't so great. Every choice that we make in life has a consequence. And if you're really being a good parent, you engage in the consequences, because otherwise they're just empty, and your kids will never start to listen to you. Which is why... When people talk about heaven and hell and write about it, they often quote C.S. Lewis, who at one point said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, no, your will be done. And in other words, people make choices. Either we say in life while we're living, "Your will be done," I'll live that way, or we're saying, "I'll let my will be done" because I kind of liked it that way. And in the end, that's what God is going to say. Every choice has a consequence. Pastor and author Frederick Buechner has this great little book um, called. Uh, wishful thinking theological ABCs where he gives definitions of various doctrinal terms and when he writes about hell he says people are free in this world to live for themselves alone if they want to and let the rest go hang and they're free to live out the dismal consequences as long as they can stand it the doctrine of hell proclaims that they retain the same freedom and whatever world comes next thus the possibility of making fools of ourselves would appear to be limitless so we make these silly crazy decisions and there's always going to be a consequence but the thing we need to understand and the thing i want to make sure that we're clear this morning is god doesn't want this to happen god goes to great lengths to make sure that nobody goes to hell except by their own choice in ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 he writes this and I, and I want us to read this together because i think it it has a really powerful impact if we actually read it not just let me say it let's read this together say to them as surely as i live declares the sovereign lord i take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live turn turn from your evil ways why will you die people of israel I mean, God pleads with us. I mean, I've, I've had the unpleasant experience of sitting in a room where people are doing an intervention with someone who's on drugs. And you can turn, change, do something different. You know, tears streaming down their cheeks. They're so desperate to have this person change their life that they'll do almost anything. And that's the way God speaks to us. Turn, change. I don't want to have you live your eternity apart from me. Whatever it takes, I'll do. Like, I'll even send my only son, and he'll live for you, and he'll die on the cross for you. If that's what it takes. And so he does that. And not only does Jesus dry on the cross for our sins, but he goes to hell so we don't have to. And you know, we've got this old, um, old teaching tool in our denomination that we call the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, Greg used it last week uh, in question and answer forty four. They're in the midst of talking about the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed. Well, if this is what you say. Why do you say that? It's a great little thing. In question and answer forty four, this is what it says. I'm going to read the question. I want you to read the answer. Why does the Apostles' Creed add, "He descended to hell"? that Jesus suffered anguish, pain, terror of the soul. Jesus suffered that so that you and I don't have to suffer that. That's what love is all about. Love that will go to any length to avoid on our behalf an eternal assignment in hell. Earlier, Lisa read this for us. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, not wanting anyone to perish. He's patient, he's not slow. He's patient. So we have this scene, right, with Jesus dying on the cross. And and we're familiar with how this is depicted, right? Jesus on this cross in the middle and and two other criminals on either side of him, three being hung there on Golgotha that day. And the punishment of the cross was reserved only for the the worst criminals they could find in the first century. If you were a horrible, despicable, terrible criminal and hurt other people, then you hung on a cross, and so these guys on either side of Jesus were those kind of people their whole life. Their whole life they were that way. And on the cross, one of them continued to be that way. Oh, well, if you're the Christ, then save yourself and save us too. Wouldn't that be great? But his Partner said, this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. Please receive me into your kingdom. Remember me when you get there. And Jesus said to those lifelong criminal moments before he died, Today you'll join me in paradise. That's patience. That's long suffering. That's love. The last thing that God wants to do is to have us spend our eternity apart from him. And it's a really low bar. Confess Christ with your lips, believe in him in your heart, and you'll receive salvation. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God of love who pursues us at all times to be your children. We thank that you are a God whose mercy and grace and forgiveness are so big that you can overlook all of our stubbornness and all of our selfishness and promise us an eternity with you. Give us your grace, O Lord and help us to be men and women who take the love that you give to us and give it to other people so they too can be with Abraham and Lazarus and all who claim Christ as king. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We're going to continue to worship with our tithes and our offerings. Just a moment before we do, just an announcement about uh, the last couple of weeks we've been um, collecting funds for World Renew, which is our denominational relief agency that's helping people who are victims of uh, Hurricane Matthew. Um, One of our core values at Elmer's Church is generosity, and you were very generous again. Uh, Like $10,400 were given toward that cause, and so that'll be set on to World Renew. Uh, We'll help people who are still devastated from that tragedy. Uh, also, just a reminder that in November and December, uh, we need to collect about 40% of our budget every year, and so we're moving toward that goal. Uh, your generosity uh, it will be deeply appreciated in that regard, and uh, we're going to continue to worship now with our tithes and offerings, encouraging you to be as generous to God as He has been to us.